0: Hello and welcome to Urbano, a podcast where we talk to leading scholars on Latin American cities, about their work, the cities they love, and how to make them better. I'm Flavia Leite and I'm a PhD student at UC Berkeley City and Regional Planning Department. You may know me from previous episodes that I co-hosted with my close friend Isabel Penhearanda. Now I'm sharing the role of host with her, to interview some scholars from Brazil, where I was born and raised, and where I do my PhD research. Some of these episodes will be in Portuguese, so this is our first trilingual season. If you haven't yet, click subscribe and follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Our guest today is Gabriel Feltran, full professor of sociology at Sciences Po. We're going to discuss his book Stolen Cars, A Journey for São Paulo's Urban Conflict. Stolen Cars is an ethnography of urban inequalities and violence in São Paulo, told by Gabriel and 10 other contributors. Through the journey of five stolen cars in the city, they tell us how stories of everyday life in Sao Paulo are intertwined with global capitalism. They discuss which social actors are involved in the journey of a stolen car and how the theft of a car is associated not only with violence, but also with socio-economic, racial, gender, and spatial inequalities. This will be a super exciting episode. Vem com a gente! Welcome back everybody to another episode of sururbano This is a special episode, not only because this is the first time that I'm hosting but also because we have two amazing guests. First, my colleague, Marcos Campos, who I met while we were undergraduate students at the University of São Paulo. Welcome, Marcos. Oh,
1: hello, everybody. Hi, Flávia. I'm really happy to be here with you and all. I'm an urban ethnographer and postdoctoral fellow at the Brazilian Center for Analysis and Planning, and also a research associate at CASA Group, a research group in Rio de State University, which is hosted at the University of São Paulo. So, in my PhD in Sociology at Rio de Janeiro State University, I built an ethnographic work following the everyday life of black poets from the peripheries of Rio de Janeiro, moving around the city to reflect on issues of contemporary livelihood, strategies, urban futures, mobility infrastructure, and still making the urban peripheries. And also, must say, I'm a really big fan of the work of today's other guest.
0: We're all big fans of his work. So, um, today, the reason we are here is to talk to Gabriel Feltran, Gabriel is an urban ethnographer, director of research at the National Scientific Research Center in France, and a full professor of sociology at Sciences Po. He obtained his PhD in social science in 2008 at the University of Campinas, with a collaborative period at the École des Etudes. sorry for my French. Currently, he researches criminal groups and illegal markets based on previous works on everyday social-political dynamics in urban outskirts, focusing on collective action marginalized groups and the criminal world in São Paulo. Hi Gabriel and welcome to Sururbano.
2: Hi, hello everyone. Very happy to be here, thanks.
0: The first question we have and we always ask our guest is, what's your favorite place to get a coffee or a beer and talk about stolen cars in São Paulo? <laughs>
2: <laughs> the first place that comes to my mind is Adin uh, Veronia in the east part of the city. Normally on Sundays there's a great samba there after the match of the Varzia team. I used to be there with my friend William, Eduardo, and my wife Debbie. Good moments in this place, Jardim Verônia, Zona Leste de São Paulo.
0: Eduardo Marques, last time he was saying that his favorite place place is San Cristóvão because of the soccer references. Ah, okay. You Um, see that.
2: Brazilian males.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We have a pattern. Okay, so now to serious questions. So we would like to start with a question about yourself. So we know that you have a bachelor's degree in veterinary medicine before switching to social sciences, and then you have a PhD in social science and have become a reference in the study of crime and violence in urban centers. Can you tell us about your journey and like what brought you to these topics?
2: Yeah, it's a very unusual journey. Actually, I had a lot of veterinaries in my family and I started studying in the, in the University of Sao Paulo very young when I was 17 years old. I followed the path and then I was there in this course that is very interesting for many reasons, but it was not my choice at all, not my profile. So I, I decided I was much more inclinated to this human sciences approaches and started to work in the favelas in Sao Paulo. We had a huge conflict in the university. The, the university guard killed a kid. I think he he was 12 years old or something like that after closing the university gates because it was the beginning of the violence period in Sao Paulo, early, early 90s. And it became a problem. The university was occupied by many people. Me, myself, I was a neighbor of the university at that time. We used to play football in the central square with a lot of guys from popular neighborhoods around. In this moment, we had this huge problem. It was start for me to thinking about this, the those issues of inequalities and violence that were like part of my personal formation as someone who was, who, who grew up in, in Sao Paulo as a, an adolescent. So I decided to start to search for something to, to work related to it. I started in an interdisciplinary group doing social service in a favela close to the university. And it was an encounter, a passion. And because of this type of work, I decided to change my career and to study social sciences,
1: especially anthropology, sociology. And here I am. Beyond the city of all Sao Paulo is the city of cars also, or of stolen cars. According to the book, in 2016, there were 400,000 cars stolen in Sao Paulo. And the book begins with an experience that is very common for those who live in Latin American cities, which is to have their cars stolen, or at least the fear that their car will be stolen. So the book tries to show that this is not an ordinary experience that is part of a larger urban phenomenon that structures cities. So as you describe, many people make money from the moment a car is stolen. So what do stolen cars teach us about urban inequalities and urban violence?
2: For us, the stolen cars issue was a perspective for us to see, to look into urban conflict in São Paulo. Not only the violent conflict, but also the the reproduction of inequalities in the city. So what we did was to follow and to reconstruct typical journeys of stolen vehicles in the city, five to be precise, five different cars stolen in different parts of the city and in different situations. All of those situations where we face situations like that in the field and we reconstruct the trajectories of what happens with, with the cars after the theft. For example, one more cheap car is stolen from a professor in a school and then it is taken to a favela and dismantled there. Another car is stolen and sent to the border, Brazil-Bolivia, to be exchanged by drugs and guns. Another car is stolen in the western part of the city and used to do another theft, which is also very common etc, etc. We start to see that those cars are in the basis of different urban markets, urban economies, not only illegal ones, but also legal ones. For example, auctions, insurance companies are earning some money with the cars and etc. So we start to show how those economies are fed by illegalities and how Different from what people normally say, the legal economies are completely entangled with the legal ones and they are reproducing inequalities and violence. So we start, for example, to show how much each of the actors earn with the stolen cars and we see that the one who is there taking the risk to stole a car violently or not, he is the one who earns less. And someone who is very far from the theft, for example, the owner of an insurance company, he's earning a lot of money with, with each and every stolen car in the city. So then we expanded a bit this discussion and we are in the moment working on a larger project on that we call Global Car, studying the these secondhand markets of vehicles around the world.
1: Yeah. In the book, you argue that to understand the conflict surrounding stolen cars, it is necessary to go beyond the idea that the only entities governing conflicts and regulating urban order are state institutions and agencies. On the contrary, you introduce the idea that there is a coexistence of legitimate or social orders which you refer to as normative regimes. So, my question is, what are normative regimes and why are they so central to the interpretation of conflicts in the city?
2: Yes, we, when we study power and, and politics, normally literature is so state-centered. Normally we think that what happens beyond the state control is something that is deviance or something that is crime or something that is illegal or something that we should avoid or something that it's not. That it's normally what is beyond the state regulation. And all the government beyond state regulation is considered to be something to be avoided. And we try ourselves to avoid this perspective. We try to describe what happens. And when we describe what happens in cities, we see many other types of government in the everyday life and many types of actors trying to regulate or to govern city life. So what we call normative regime is a kind of framework for the everyday action in the everyday life of people. So sometimes we act beyond the state law. I would say many times we we act following other types of values. So that's what why it is normative. So my family values, my personal values, my moral values, my, the, my community values, my, the types of things I think should be done even if there's no law regulating this. And many people do that. And this is, of course, part of the, the power struggle of conflicts in, in, in different urban situations. We use, in our case, at least in, in drawing from Sao Paulo situation, we used to talk at least about th- three different power regimes and different normative frameworks that are very clearly used in everyday life, in, in, especially in the poor neighborhoods. So the law of the state, for sure, but also the law of the crime. For example, when someone is stolen in a poor neighborhood in São Paulo, normally this person won't call the police, can't call the police, but have to refer to, to call criminal guys, the guys who are responsible for the discipline in the zone to try to get back the stolen stuff and etc. So in this case, crime is delivering informal and extra legal justice. They are not like for in the perspective of this person. They are not doing other crime. they are replacing the actor responsible for the justice.
0: In the book, you also make this persistent argument that legal and illegal markets are not separate, as you've just mentioned. And you also demonstrate that the local, state, national and international actors are very interconnected. Could you elaborate on those relationships, particularly the local and the global, since you already mentioned the relationship between the quote unquote legal and illegal?
2: So there's very normal things in life that we use to, to show how those things are entangled. For example, if when I started my field work, I thought I would interview a criminal, a drug trafficker. And I thought at the beginning, I was a young scholar at that moment. I thought they were very different people and they would live in a in another world, very different from my world. And it was <laughs> at the beginning a surprise when I arrived and I see really average people talking about very common life. And we go to the shopping mall and we buy things and we do things exactly like others and we are not living in this very distant and dark life. Actually, people were more or less like me, using the money they got illegally to deal with their with their average life. So if the guy earned some money dealing drugs, he will use this money normally in legal activities. So they will improve the earnings of legal business. Someone who I tell the story of a guy who stole a vehicle and the day after he was in the shopping mall buying sunglasses from Oakley and eating in McDonald's. So in this sense the illegal money by consumption it becomes legal economy and it becomes improvement. In, in, in the economy, also paying taxes, because we pay a lot of taxes by in, in the consumption activities. But we could also talk about the billions of dollars in each cocaine operation. For example, when drug traffickers export cocaine from Santos Port to Le Havre, where I am now, we Talk about it was in, in the middle of January. They here where where I am now, they just says almost two tons of cocaine. So it's billions of dollars. Okay? And this money will of course be reinjected in legal markets, will be transformed in a lot of different companies to launder this money. And this is another form of connection between legal and illegal. If we re- if you have a business that gives you billions of dollars, of course you can reinvest this money in the legal economy and produce a lot of different business that could be useful for you in, also to escape from state investigations and etc. No, I'm an entrepreneur. Okay? I have this holding of different companies and those companies are lucrative and they are okay and uh, it's not true that that I have illegal money feeding my bank accounts as well. And it's very difficult to trace when you have 80 companies in a holding in different parts of the world, tax havens, Paraguay, Miami, and different countries in Europe. Or, for example, if you want to export cocaine, you don't need to to put this cocaine in another container from another company you have your own containers for your own export company and then you have your uh, the, the importation company in europe etc etc so the this really high level and world wholesale market of drugs for example it produces incredible amounts of money and this money is completely integrated in legal economies today so there's different ways to frame what happens in the in this border between legal and illegal. Normally, we are used to see this very di- dichotomic and bipolar view that make us think that criminals live in an underworld and that their money circulates in this underworld of drugs, prostitution, and guns. But when Yes, this world exists, and it's very integrated to our normal world. And in the daylight, there's a lot of illegal money being laundered and feeding economies.
1: You mentioned, Gabriel, that the book tries to go beyond, for example, from a state-centric approach in terms of how conflicts are regulated. But still, uh, the state is still present. This is the perspective I want to try to uh, delve more deeply here. It's the case of how state regulations frame and transform markets. So the stolen card points out to the importance of the dismantling law, for example, approved in 2014 in reducing car theft in São Paulo through various mechanisms of auto-identification identification of auto parts and technologies. So why is this such an important case in theoretical and political terms? And how can this kind of regulation of illegal markets minimize the drawbacks of prohibition?
2: No, it's a great example because and it proves how entangled things are and those regimes are. Because when we change the law, the criminals have to change their activity. And sometimes it's not so profitable as it used to be because state regulated the activity. So it happens in different countries where we have different types of regulation in drug markets, for example. But we use the example of dismantling law in São Paulo to show how an illegal market can be regulated by the state and how it provokes concrete effects in the economy. So what happened in São Paulo is that we used to have a complete illegal market of vehicle spare parts, and a lot of stolen cars were sent to these places to be dismantled, and so we could feed the market with original spare parts. Okay. Instead of chasing The the thieves. The state decided to regulate this market and say, "Okay, let's track these parts. Let's put a QR code in each of the parts that is official to be to be sold in the market, and with this QR code we can trace the origin of the part. It's a very simple technical mechanism, and." It makes a lot of difference because when the state said, Okay, you have some time to be a regular store and to sell spare parts and legal ones, you have to register in this system and etc. We will send you the QR codes and etc. People said, Okay, let's enter this market, let's try to have this regulation and to be part of this legal business instead of being in this gray zone between legal and illegal and of course the car theft decreases a lot after this law it doesn't end because in a sense it's ve- it's economically very profitable to continue to use stolen cars but it decreases a lot and the fringe of stolen cars in the entire market of spare parts decreases a lot For us, a kind of proof that those regimes of regulation, those normative regimes, the criminal one, the state one, they are in connection. They are not completely isolated.
1: Thanks, Gabriel. Now we have a question about methodology. I think you already mentioned when you introduced the book in your first question, but the book is organized around five typical journeys, what you call typical journeys of five stolen cars in São Paulo. So how is it that you and your co-authors were able to learn about stolen car markets in Brazil In urban, I mean about urban inequalities and violence more broadly, from particularly five stories of stolen cars.
2: So when we started studying those car journeys, we understood they were very repetitive. Talking to the police and talking to some thieves, we asked very simple questions: What do you do with this car? Or what has happened with this car when you found it, and etc. It was very regular. So people said, no, I take this car and I give it to someone who I don't know exactly what he will do with this. Or no, this car will be dismantled in that place. Or, for example, when the police shows that for this bank robbery, they used a lot of stolen cars. So they say, OK, a stolen car can be used in another crime. So we see, for example, a lot of videos in the YouTube, videos of CCTV or cameras in the helmet, things like that. Showing how the theft itself happens, and then we could visit some police departments. And there were some yards with a lot of cars. Why those cars are here? Because they were stolen, or because people couldn't pay for them, or because they were seized, and etc. etc. And then we we discovered that. Cars could also be used to be exchanged in the borders for especially cocaine, but also in different parts of the Brazilian border for different products, electronic products, cannabis and etc. And it's a specific market in some places. For example, Toyota Hilux, a pickup truck, won't have exactly the same niche of market than a small vehicle or than a big truck, for example, or a luxury car. So they have very different destinations after being stolen. And we try to account for this, at the same time, this complexity and these regularities. And the journey were inspired in basically by two anthropological works. The one about who follows a flip-flop comes from Caroline Knowles, and the one who follows a mushroom coming from Anat Singh. So those are the, the books we read before starting to reconstruct our journeys.
0: So one thing that Marcos and I, we were discussing, is that often in any written work that involves more than one author, we see different styles and of writing, right? And the end result often does not sound like one voice, right? But this is not the case of your book. It's amazing how even though... It's the research of 11 ethnographers. The final product is very cohesive. And we're thinking, Gabriel, can you tell us how did you, the 11 of you, achieve that? You're the editor, but...
2: Yes, we had three different moments. The first moment, the authors wrote the chapters. So the first moment, all, the whole group decided the structure of the book and the contents that we would use to describe these trajectories in different chapters. So we decided to have all the cars being stolen in the introduction in chapter one and then chapter two, state response, chapter three, insurance companies, how they respond to crime. And then chapter four, the options, I think, and then the dismantling law. And then we go to the more urban discussions in the end of this, the book. And in the conclusions, we will have the waste after being used and stolen, resold and etc. What happens with the car wrecks. We decided this structure together, the, the entire team. Then we said, okay, let's write those chapters. And then different groups of researchers, they decide to, to the contents, the specific things and they wrote the, the chapters. And of course, as you said, 11 people working together. So you have very different styles of writing and different types of organization. And sometimes pe- person or the people working on chapter five, they don't know exactly what happened in the chapter two. And it's a quite narrative book. So we used to, we had to review this many times. And then we decided to have a group composed by the most experienced researchers in the group. So in this case, myself, Luana Motta and Deborah Fromm, that we call the editors of this book at the first moment of editing this book. And we three, we read all the chapters and we started to edit and to harmonize the style and etc. And then a third moment that was me myself alone doing editions and trying to have this work done to to so the book would be would be an entire text not a not an organization of chapters.
0: As we come to the end, we wanted to talk about a team that runs through the book as well, but it's more explicit presented in a Sebrap blog post that you wrote on the totalitarian movement in Brazil after 2013, which I will include in the show notes. The theme is the role of police forces in the reproduction of violence and inequality in Brazil. And you write about the transformation of the ideological or political discourses and practices of police forces since the 1990s, but particularly in the last years, and how they are linked to social political changes in the urban peripheries. And I was wondering if you could describe these recent transformations of these ideological discourses and practice of the police forces and how they relate to Bolsonaro's ideology and discourse. I know it's not completely related to the book, but we, you have been writing about this, so we're interested.
2: They were all based on this marginal perspective, I would say. Okay, so different empirical situations that led me to think about the politicization of the police, the role of the military police in this movement, the discourse of the police coming as a reaction both to the democratic achievements and the criminal expansion in the country. The the anti-intellectualism of these discourses that could be something for us to reflect upon and i was really trying to remember the situations i lived that could that could show us what were the turning points in this case for example i remember that i was doing field work in the eastern part of the city for years and there were a lot of and i was close to a human rights center very grassroots in the neighborhood And I was reading, I was listening to many situations of police violence. And when the police violence became very strong, we used to have these moments where the activists of these human rights centers, they call uh, the person responsible for the police in the area, and they try to have a discussion with this person saying, look, the policemen are acting as a thief. He is doing extortion. He is beating people. Even he is trying to kill people here. And we—it's not what the police should do. And of course, the institution reacted, saying, "No, of course not. We have to listen to you. We have to to see what happened in the neighborhood." At least in the in this institutional phase, the police was very republican until two thousand thirteen, fourteen. Then this, the same situation happens again. We have a lot of police abuse and police violence in the community and the human rights center called the responsible for the police in the area. And this person says, and he arrives in the discussion saying, I think there's a kind of mistake here. You are defending the thieves against the police. And we are the police against the thieves. Who is the right? Who is the wrong? So this happened, this type of things happened in different parts of the city, in different regions of the country, I would say, more or less at the same time. So if the if it happens in the base, it can be something very isolated and without importance for the country. But then we see that is happening regularly in different part of the country, and then we see that this kind of far right ideologies are circulating in the churches, in the police departments. They are talking about God to train the police in another city, and then we 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 see the Freemasons calling the police guy to do a kind of speech for them, and then they talk about politics and how important it is to be united. And then you see people not talking about the law but talking about God to state what we they should do, etc., etc etc. So these small interactions and these small situations in the field could and I believe in that and my method is a bit like that could show something that we couldn't see before this this type of event. And this is more or less the intention of these, these articles. They were not made to to produce a kind of major and established framework to to understand the political scene, the political sphere, but they are made to contribute. They are made to okay. Let's, if we look from our own perspectives, what could we see? What could we add to this debate?
0: I yeah, like the the moral crusade you mentioned in this article is still very much going on in evangelical groups and the police force. Sure. So, yeah. I, there's not a lot to be hopeful about, yeah.
2: No, actually the elections, we were, of course, very relieved when we see that Bolsonaro was no longer the president, but the same project they won in Sao Paulo state, in Rio state, in Minas state, the three most populated states in the country. Then they have a strong group and much more than the left and the center left in, in, or the progressive forces in the Congress. Then they have a lot of influence and very strong influence in the public ministry. Then they have the liberals, the professionals, the, 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 a lot of countrymen, farmers and people in the countryside. Then they have this very religious, yeah. The financial groups, the evangelical groups are not all of them, but most part of them connected to these far-right ideologies as well. So we see that they are very strong in the country and they they are alive. This movement is alive. And as sociologists, we, can, we cannot avoid to see those things.
1: The last question, which is related to the previous one. We have seen an increase in violence in recent years, not only in Brazil, but throughout Latin America. For example, in Ecuador, violence has recently increased to the point where the TV station was attacked on the air and yesterday, the day before we are recording this podcast, Bukele was re-elected in El Salvador. So in Brazil, the police are breaking records in the murder of civilians and so on. It seems that neither the right nor the left has a good plan for public security, which is something that I think you're starting to say in the previous answer. Is there a fundamental difference in how political groups on the left have worked to address this issue compared to the right? How do you think about those issues?
2: Thanks for this question, Marcus. I think, at least in Latin America, the left is not thinking about public security in a very clever way, I would say. The very average discourse in the left is structural, and it's based on a statement that the more democratic we are, the more equal we become, the less violent behavior we will see in the country and the less crime we will have. So it's there's no actors in this analysis. We have a structural perspective, and then we say, okay, let's do nothing in terms of security. Let's do not think about security. Let do not, let's do not talk about security, but let's talk about inequality. Let's talk about human rights and etc. And when things change in the future naturally, public security will change as well. And it's simply not true. Actually, in our democratic period, we have the arrival of transnational illegal markets in the country, and we had this explosion of violence throughout the country in different times. We do have to think about the practical solutions We do have to think about public policy insecurity. We do have to think about how could we deal with the very strong problem related to victimization, to urban crime, to illegal markets, to violence in general. So we have to think about those issues and to produce public policies to address the concrete cases people are experiencing. And meanwhile, people are discussing the new drone that they will buy from Israel with public funds. So we have to enter this discussion and have good people, qualified people to do it as we have in the health policies or in the education policies or in the social service and the economics and etc. But we don't have this qualified discussion related to security
0: I mean I think you are kind of trying to push for disqualified discussion in academia by bringing these very concrete and like I would say even policy oriented suggestions right and even though we're not very we're not ending on a very hopeful note I think this is important <laughs>
2: <laughs> Yeah I don't think I don't think it's I think our task is really to produce this uncomfortable situation so people could think about solutions and it won't come from an idea. It will come from mobilization of resources from different parts of society. And I think there's not so much room for very optimistic thoughts in public security. But in a sense, there's a colleague, Joana Monteiro, who always says that our security model is so wrong, and it's producing so many harms that if we start something new, it could work. <laughs> <laughs> Anything can be better because we never tried something <laughs> yeah. good. We have never tried something good. So if if we so there's hope if we could reframe the system, as we did, for example, in the health with Susan, etc. It, it has a lot of effects. they were quick effects, actually. If we see, for example, the decrease of child mortality in Brazil, it was really quick. So I I really think the right model of policymaking in in security, it could succeed and it could do a much better job than we are doing now. So I hope it, it becomes clear for people that even people who are expecting to have security with the far right, after 10 years of far right, we won't have security. It will become clear as well.
0: Thank you, Gabriel. Thank you so much for sharing. And we hoped to meet in person, the two of you You will be in Europe, but eventually in Sao Paulo in a bar, not in a soccer bar. Urbano is a product of Latin American Cities Working Group, based in UC Berkeley. To find out more about us, check out the show notes, where we also link the articles we discuss. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you want to be a co-host, you can reach us at letam underscore cities on Twitter, or write to me at ipenarandac on Instagram or Twitter. This season was made possible by grants from UC Berkeley's Social Science Matrix and the Berkeley Economy and Society Initiative. Our original music is made by Jaime Alejandro Angarita and art by Rachel Myers. Finally, our production was done by the amazing Sebastián Duque.